Hello everyone again. Uh, welcome to our second study in the Holy Spirit series. And last time we considered the question, have you received the Spirit when you believed? And um, this time we're going to look at again the question in another way, what is missing? And we saw last time of, of a group of 12 men, disciples it says in Acts chapter 19, who hardly even heard whether there was a Holy Spirit and uh, they, they had been baptised into John's baptism. They believed in Christ in some kind of way, but they needed to be baptised into Jesus and Paul laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. But they were out of the sequence of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world, Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10. And it shows us that there can be those now who have not a full, um, complete experience of New Testament Holy Spirit um, encounter and this is what we desire. This is fully orbed Christian um, experience. It's the way we're meant to live. It's normative Christianity. And um, I want you to see just today that that's exactly where the original 12 were just after Jesus ascended to heaven. And uh, Acts chapter 1, of course, we were there last time, but we we read in, in verse 4, being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. Um, now this is staggering because this shows us that the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life is a non-negotiable power. Um, he is a person that we need to cultivate relationship with, but we actually cannot operate in the intended design of God for his children and for the whole corporate church, if we are not endued with this Holy Spirit power from on high. This is a necessity to receive the Holy Spirit in this manner. To such an extent that the disciples were told, look, and remember this is after the death, resurrection, and just before the ascension of Jesus, Jesus is saying, I don't want you to lift a finger. I don't want you to do anything without the Holy Spirit. He's got to come and you've got to wait till he comes. And th this is after the Great Commission. And we tend to think that in, in, in Mark, uh, sorry, Mark 16 and Matthew 28, after Jesus told them, go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of all creatures and baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, that all of a sudden with breakneck speed, the disciples just went out there and then started winning souls. No, it wasn't the case at all. They had to wait. They waited those 10 days in the upper room in prayer for the promise, because Jesus said, you'll not be able to do this job without me. Um, and, and, and we see this born out uh, in John chapter 16 also. If you look at John chapter 16 um, and verse 7, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And there's more of his ministry described there. But the point I'm trying to make here is Jesus was saying, I've got to go because if I don't go, you'll not get this one who will bring you the power that you need to have to live and to bring others to resurrection, eternal life. Now, that's incredible because when I was a kid growing up in church and Sunday school, reading the stories of Jesus, I used to think, wow, 
my greatest dream would have been to be there when Jesus walked on the earth, you know, to witness him walking on water, feeding the 5,000, raising Lazarus from the dead, etc. What would that not have been like? Has anybody never thought that? And yet what we have here, on the contrary, it's better that Jesus isn't here and we're not here with a bodily Jesus, but we are here with the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus was saying. It's better for you that you're at the back of the crowd with the Holy Spirit than in the front of the crowd when Jesus is doing the miracles. And that's the significance of the coming of the power of the Holy Spirit. And there's many things that he, he said he would come to do. And this is actually at the center of the gospel. This is what the gospel is all about. God always intended to dwell among his people. Right from the Garden of Eden, right to the tent of meeting with Moses, right to the tabernacle, right to the temple, right to... Jesus dwelling among us, tabernacling among us in human flesh and right to the new Jerusalem where God will dwell with men and they will be his people in the new Jerusalem. It's always been about God wanting to be dwell with his own. And this is why the Holy Spirit was given so that God could actually come and indwell us. If you look at John chapter 14 verse 16 18 you see this here also I will pray the father and he will give you another helper comforter some versions say that he may abide with you forever the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you I will not leave you orphans I will come to you he already dwelt with the disciples just as we'll see in a future study how uh, he dwelt with Old Testament believers. He would have come upon Old Testament believers. He was with Old Testament believers, the Holy Spirit. But now he's coming, and this is future tense now, Jesus saying to the disciples, he will be in you. And this is New Testament, New Covenant experience where the Holy Spirit comes to dwell, to stay within believers. We become the temples of the Holy Spirit the church corporately, as we are met together as living stones, becomes a temple to God. And Christ's ministry largely on earth, um, I remember hearing John Stott say this, was external and local. Uh, he hardly ever went out of his own jurisdiction. And he was healing the sick and so on. And it was largely an external thing. Although hearts were being changed, but the Holy Spirit would come to bring the very life of God to dwell in people. And that would be internal and it would be a universal across the whole world. And you've got to understand, this is why Jesus came, died and rose again. Not just to get our sins forgiven. Getting our sins forgiven was to clear the pathway so that God could come and live in people. That's the whole point. The end game is God coming into us. And filling us completely with his life and power. And we see this mentioned, John 14 again. Verse 12, this is an incredible scripture. We'll maybe look at it later on. Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. Wow. And greater works. Double wow. Then the, uh, the, the, the these he will do because I go to my Father. Now that's the part of the verse that's often neglected. You see, Jesus dies. He rises again. He ascends. But it's because of his ascension to heaven, he goes up, the Holy Spirit comes down because he's now glorified. We see this also, verse 28 of chapter 14 
of John. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to my father. For my father is greater than I. Why would they want to rejoice at Jesus disappearing on them? Because they've got to understand that when he goes, the Spirit comes. When he is glorified, the Holy Spirit is outpoured. And we see this in chapter 7 of John, which is a very well-known text to do with the uh, giving of the Holy Spirit. But again, a lot of people don't notice how this is connected with his ascension. And this is future tense uh, spoken to the disciples. We often relegate it to the gospel and it is um, pertinent to evangelism. But it's, it's, it's got a lot to say about receiving the Spirit. Jesus said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now listen to John's commentary. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now we know that the Holy Spirit was there with these disciples. Jesus said that. In fact, in the latter chapters of John, Jesus breathes on them and they receive something more of the Holy Spirit. But it wasn't until Acts 2 that they experienced everything that Jesus Christ died, rose and ascended to heaven for them to have. And that's what he continually said throughout his ministry. And until that moment, something was missing to the extent that Jesus told them not to do a thing in the Great Commission without the accompaniment of the Blessed Holy Spirit. And this is what Peter actually preached on the day of Pentecost. If you look at Acts chapter 2, verse 32 and uh, 33, and these are lesser known verses in Peter's Pentecostal sermon, but I love them and capitulate the gospel. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. By the way, when the Holy Spirit's poured out, you often see and hear things. A lot of stuff goes on. And it can be confusing at times. And the, uh, that's what happened on the day of Pentecost. People thought they were drunk. People misunderstood. They were confused. They were mocking even, perplexed. What is this? And Peter was able to say, this is that which was promised by the prophet Joel. In Joel chapter 2. The Holy Spirit shall be poured out on all flesh. And of course that started in Acts chapter 2. Jerusalem, Judea, Acts chapter 8, Samaria, Acts chapter 10, the uttermost parts of the world, Acts chapter 19, Ephesus. And it's still going on because the Holy Spirit has not been poured out on all flesh yet. Has he? No. This gospel of the kingdom has to be preached to the four corners of the world and then the end will come. Peter said, this is for you. The promise, verse 39 of chapter 2, the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call. And so, oh, I'm not going to enter in just at this juncture to arguments whether the gifts of the Spirit should be operative now and so on. I, I just want to present the scripture to you right away at the outset of this series to say, without getting bogged down on those arguments yet, 
that the Holy Spirit's power in the Christian life is non-negotiable. But it should not be assumed at the point of conversion. Some may receive everything they need of the Holy Spirit then. But I have my suspicion that generally speaking, it's later on that people really get the grips with this issue. That's the way it was in Acts. And in fact, even when you do receive the filling of the Holy Spirit, or as I say, whatever label you want to put on it, there's always more. There's always more of God to experience. It was Stuart Briscoe who said, All that is being done in evangelical Christianity can be done with good equipment, modern media, and a few gifted people. Very little that is happening in the church is explainable solely on the basis of God's activity and authority. In other words, he's saying, we can do a lot without God. And if God wasn't to show up 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning, would any of us notice anything different? Am I alone in thinking that in many of our churches there's an absence of power, there's an absence of fire, there's an absence of the miraculous, the supernatural, the vital, the expectancy of the unexpected? It's a contradiction, but it's the way we're meant, to, the tension we're meant to live in as spiritual Christians, expecting the unexpected. It was C.H. Spurgeon who said, a church in the land without the Spirit, even that statement gets a lot of bells ringing for people, a church in the land without the Spirit is rather a curse than a blessing. If you have not the Spirit of God, Christian worker, remember that you stand in somebody else's way. You're a fruitless tree standing where a fruitful tree might grow. What a statement. And I think he's referring, isn't he, to the fig tree that Jesus cursed. And remember, the fig tree was meant to be bearing fruit, or Jesus at least expected fruit of that tree. But it was taking up space, room, but it was fruitless, just like the nation of Israel was at that particular time. Taking up space, but not bearing fruit for the glory of God. So I challenge you again today. Is there something missing? Are you operating? I mean, are you in... The, the Christ, on the Christian hamster wheel of activity where you're doing the right things you're trying to say your prayers you're trying to read the Bible you're trying to witness to other people you're trying to be holy and the emphasis is on the trying and it's very trying for you because it's hard work it's not working and you recognize there's something missing there's something missing perhaps in your marriage. There's something missing as a parent. And none of us is perfect. But you know there's something missing in your walk with God. You read about the early apostles, the Acts. You read about heroes of the faith and biographies and so on. You even know of Christians today who are blazing a trail for Jesus across the world. And you know that, that you're not like that. Now we're not all the same and we have to be, we're, be, be, be careful of comparisons. But you know there's something missing. There's something not right. And some of you have been told, oh, when you become a Christian, you've got all you need and you don't need to seek anything else. That's nonsense. Utter nonsense. And we'll show you that from, uh, during this study. But I want you to come to a place today 
of desperation to recognize, listen, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's how God builds his kingdom through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how he built the early church, in the power of the Spirit. So is there something missing? Something missing in your church? Don't complain about it and gossip. Just pray. Pray for your minister, pastor, teacher, church leader, whatever. Pray that they might encounter an empowering of the Holy Spirit in a mighty way that would change your church. If you're in a church that doesn't really believe in the Holy Spirit, oh, well, we all believe in the Holy Spirit, but a lot of our churches worship a trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures. And the Holy Spirit has not been given an open course, a free way in our churches, let alone in our lives. And we are scared of him. We have been inoculated against him by lies that people have told. And by abuses of those who have claimed things in his name. Why not come with me now on this journey as we study this blessed person and his power? And humble yourself before God again and say, Holy Spirit, I recognize there is more. Would you reveal yourself to me? Because Jesus died, rose again, ascended to heaven so that you might come and live within me and take complete control of me. Would you come and fill me and show me yourself and help me to walk with you? We'll give you more steps of how that can be done maybe next time before we enter into more studies. But will you pray that, even that invitation prayer, a general prayer, even if you don't understand everything and you're a bit nervous, as many are, Holy Spirit, would you teach me more about yourself so that I might encounter you in greater ways because I know there's more and I want the more. Thank you, Father, for sending the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, come and join us next time. We'll be talking probably about why the Holy Spirit is not experienced as much in fullness in people's lives as he should be and what steps you can take practically um, for that in your life. And then we'll be continuing to study into more specific areas around the Holy Spirit. So see you next time. God bless you.